0: We think we want to control everything. We think we do. And we strive for that in our lives, controlling the way we feel, controlling what happens to us, to other people. But in fact, our happiest moments tend to be the moments where we don't have control, where we're subjugated to something larger than ourselves, which is in a way what drugs do. Right, that's why there's that appeal. We can forget ourselves when we're in the grips of drugs. But of course, drugs are sort of this, this false this false god. Social media can almost be like a false god too, like it is all powerful, but ultimately that is not what is gonna make us happy.
1: I'm Doug Bopes, personal trainer, best-selling author and entrepreneur, and I'm on a mission to help others become the best version of themselves. So I'd like to welcome you to the Adversity Advantage Podcast And today's guest is one of the world's leading experts in the neuroscience of addiction and recovery and has been one of the most popular guests on the podcast. Anna Lemke, MD, joins me today for round two. Anna is chief of the Stanford Medicine Dual Diagnosis Clinic and professor and medical director of addiction medicine at Stanford University School of Medicine. Dr. Lemke has testified before Congress and consulted with governors and senators from Kentucky to Missouri to Nevada. You may also recognize her. From her appearance on the hit Netflix movie *The Social Dilemma*, aside from this, Anna has also written two books: *Drug Dealer* MD and her latest book, *The New York Times* bestseller *Dopamine Nation*. So let's get this conversation going and welcome Anna Lemke back to the Adversity Advantage Podcast. Anna, welcome back to the podcast.
0: Hey, thanks for having me back. It's good to be here.
1: It's good to be with you. You are one of the most popular guests on the the podcast, and. I wanted to get you back on here because I know that the first time we talked, we really went deep and heavy into the subject of the neuroscience of addiction and recovery. And today's conversation, there might be a little bit of overlap, but I really wanted to go more into the subject of of dopamine and impulsiveness because we live in this world right now where it's so easy to be impulsive and, and make decisions that we might regret. It's so easy to chase after the instant gratification. I just think people are going to get a lot out of this. And I think maybe a good place for us to start is like dopamine's become a buzzword over the last several years. If you could explain to the best of your ability, like, like what dopamine is, uh, when is it released and why it's important?
0: Okay. So dopamine is a chemical that we make in our brain. It has different functions in the brain. For example, it's very important for movement. And it's also essential for the experience of pleasure, reward, and motivation. But I think at its broadest level, dopamine is a way that our brains signal to us that we need to pay more attention to the environment and that we potentially need to either approach the stimulus in the environment or back away from it. And the reason I think that that's a better, broader way of understanding dopamine is because we can have a release of dopamine in response to things that are negative stimuli, as well as to things that we typically associate with a positive or rewarding experience. I think sometimes dopamine is mistakenly identified as the pleasure neurotransmitter, and it is important to the experience of pleasure, but not just pleasure. Novelty in and of itself. So anything new in the environment, even if it's potentially negative, will get our brains to release dopamine in response. And of course, it's no coincidence that dopamine is important, not just for these stimuli in the environment but also for movement because those things are intertwined You know, from an evolutionary perspective because most organisms will have to either move toward or move away from whatever the stimulus is. And if you think about the purpose of like hormones and neurotransmitters in our brains, the fundamental purpose at its most basic level is to trigger some kind of physical movement or physical action or physical response. I sometimes think that reducing it down to that fundamental can be very helpful because so much of our modern life is sedentary. We are not moving, right? We are having these interactions on the internet at the tip of a finger, and yet our bodies really want to move in response to those. So I think reconceptualizing dopamine as a signal for some kind of movement toward the stimulus can be a, a kind of a helpful, broader way to think about it.
1: Hey, that's that's so well said and, and very well explained. And I learned something new, like every time I, I talk to you, and that definitely put things in a different perspective for me, because you're right, like dopamine often gets associated with just being like the molecule that's associated with pleasure, but it's also associated with pain. And that's why things like drugs, alcohol and other addictions are closely related to our relationship with dopamine. As far as like like what happens in a like a real-time situation with dopamine, the way I understand it and feel free to correct me if I'm wrong is that like say that I am going to do something like let's just say that I'm a, I'm addicted to drugs and I am super excited to go score some drugs. Like dopamine, as I understand it, is what's getting me excited and moving towards seeking that rush, that high, that chase. And then once I get the drug and do it and come down off the high, it almost feels like there's no more dopamine, you don't feel good anymore. Like, and you see that a lot. Like if somebody goes and cheats on their partner, like they'll have the same kind of response or they spend a bunch of money that they didn't like wanna spend. Like it's always like the chase feels good. And then once, you, once you've once you got it, you feel like crap. So like what's going on like in the brain and why do people feel like that?
0: Right, so let's break it apart in a couple different pieces. So there, first there's the piece about anticipating our reward. And we can only anticipate our reward if we've learned that it is reinforcing or rewarding for us because we've done it in the past and this gets to the heart of what people talk about when they talk about addiction as a learned behavior because that that is the element of learning we our brain remembers our reaction in the past to that stimulus. Unfortunately, what our brain tends to remember is some of the earliest exposures to that drug. We're very bad at remembering the sort of negative downstream consequences, which in and of itself is really interesting, right? That we have this vivid acute memory of the early reinforcing effects of our early drug use, but are almost amnestic for the sort of negative consequences of drug use. But importantly, once we've learned to associate that behavior or that substance with feeling good or feeling some kind of reinforcing uh, you know, feeling, then when we think about it, that drug or when we anticipate using that drug, we're already getting an increase in dopamine firing. So remember that dopamine, we're always firing dopamine at a kind of baseline tonic level then when we are reminded of our drug, a trigger, or we're anticipating using drug that drug, we get an increase. The point being that we're already a little bit high anticipating that drug. Now we have to do you know the work of going to get it. But here's a key piece. Right after we have that increase in dopamine firing as we're anticipating the drug, immediately that's followed by a decrease in dopamine firing, not just to baseline levels, but actually below baseline levels. So our anticipation or our recall of drug use alone triggers this dopamine deficit state, which then drives the craving. So once we've anticipated the drug use or been reminded the drug use, we get a little bit high, then we get that dopamine deficit state. And now we're sort of caught in the clutches of the incredibly strong physiologic urge to get dopamine firing at least back to baseline. So very hard once we've put ourselves in that state or been put in that state accidentally to resist the compelling drive to restore baseline dopamine firing. So that, that's the first piece of it. Now we're craving, we go get it. Like there's no slowing down that train, right? We go and we get it. We only remember like the euphoric recall of using. We use it. And if we're in the early stages of our addiction, When we use, we will get an even bigger increase in dopamine release with ingestion of our drug, right? But what happens over time is that we develop tolerance. So over time with repeated use, we develop tolerance, meaning that we need more potent forms of our drug to get the same effect. And if we are using enough for long enough, essentially our brain learns that drug to the extent that we get zero bump, with actual ingestion. So again, we anticipate the drug, we get a little bit of dopamine release above baseline, followed by a dopamine deficit state that's craving that drives the work to do it. Now we're expecting a big dopamine increase with drug ingestion, but because our brains have changed our hedonic or joy set point, we no longer get that big increase. Instead, we get a tiny little bump or maybe no bump at all. We actually go into the dopamine deficit state immediately or get the opposite. So that's really important because if there's one thing that will send our brains into a dopamine nosedive, it's anticipating a reward that doesn't come, right? So we thought that using would bring about a certain feeling. We don't get that feeling we were anticipating. So we use more and more more potent forms. We add something else to it just trying to recapture that feeling. But we're not going to be able to recapture it because our brains have already adjusted our hedonic set point And we're in this kind of chronic dopamine deficit state. And what will really recapture good feelings is to abstain from our drug for long enough for our brains to start to upregulate and make our own dopamine and dopamine receptors again. So that's why abstinence, you know, sustained abstinence is so important, probably not even just from our drug of choice, but also from drugs generally, right? Because all drugs end up triggering the same dopamine reward pathway. I, I hope that ex- I explained it. It was a little convoluted, but it's hard to do it without images.
1: No, it was very well explained. And I think people are really going to be able to gain a better understanding of of why like the chase in itself of going after something, not just substances, but anything in life that we regret. It could be, like I said, like It could be like watching porn that you didn't want to watch it could be cheating on your spouse it could be like eating a whole pizza like it could be like a variety of things and i guess to bring it back to what you were talking about like let's like let's just say that that there's somebody who's listening to this that they just are caught up in these addictive patterns where no matter what they're constantly going after like the quick fixes and it doesn't have to be necessarily with drugs maybe it's with food or maybe it's with sex or what's with money Like, do you recommend somebody just going on a complete fast from like all things like dopamine? Because I would say it's like, it's kind of hard not to eat, right? So like, what would you recommend to somebody who's looking to just break out of that toxic pattern and begin to learn to retrain their brain to help have a healthy relationship with dopamine?
0: For most of my patients I will recommend that they identify their drug of choice. What is that substance or behavior that they continue to get caught in the addiction vortex and to abstain from that for 30 days. It's not that 30 days is, you know, going to solve all their problems, but it's like the amount of time our brains can sort of conceptualize And we can anticipate it, we can plan for it, we can set a specific quit date, we can put our self-binding strategies in place. Now, if your drug of choice is something like food or sex, obviously you can't not eat. And we do consider sex to be a, a healthy part of, you know, a flourishing life. But with food, what you can do is you can not eat processed food for a month or not eat sugar, you know. And so you stick to certain categories of eatings or you can stick to certain times of eatings, whatever you can do to help bring back or moderate your use. For something like sex, I actually recommend that people have no orgasms with themselves or others for that period of time, all in the pursuit of resetting reward pathways. And the idea is that when you get to 30 days, it's not as if all your problems will be solved, but at least you will have you know changed your brain chemistry enough that then you can make data-informed decisions about how you want to use going forward. And if it's a drug like sex or food that we ultimately need to we need to ingest or, you know, we consider eating and sexual behavior a part of a, you know, a healthy lifestyle. Then we need to be very specific about the plan. What are we going to use? What are we going to eat? What are we going to do sexually? You know, how much, how often, who with, so that we can really begin to define what that healthy use looks like.
1: Right. That makes a lot of sense because I've had friends who have had like issues when it comes to like pornography or, or sex and food, like things that are like maybe like non-drug related. And one of the things that they've as often like worked for them is obviously you can't cut all that stuff out like permanently, but it's like learning how to reestablish healthy relationships with them and then getting your dopamine receptors like recalibrated to a point where when you introduce like certain parts of those things back into your life like the se- like you know sex and then also like maybe like having sugar processed foods you're able to hopefully like like manage them in a healthier way because now your dopamine receptors are kind of brought back to some baseline With everything getting more and more expensive, I am constantly looking for new ways to cut costs and find savings and also help my personal training clients do the same. That's why when it comes to buying my organic groceries and household goods, I am all about Thrive Market. With Thrive Market, you can shop everything from healthy pantry essentials to sustainable meat and seafood to frozen fruits and vegetables and non-toxic beauty products. And they are all delivered right to your door. Thrive Market carefully vets every product they carry so you can trust that if it's there, it's the best. Finding savings on items that matter most to you is easy with Thrive Market. You can find what you need because they have over 5,000 food, home, and beauty products. So if you're looking for plant-based, keto, or gluten-free, Thrive Market has you covered. Some of the things that I've bought that I'm really enjoying are their chicken breasts. Some of the things that I've really been enjoying from them lately are their chicken breasts, their fish, and their frozen veggies. Plus, when you shop with Thrive Market, you can save time and gas by not having to make that trip to the store because you can buy everything you need online. And best of all, if you happen to find a lower price elsewhere, Thrive Market will match it. So join Thrive Market today to get 40% off your first order and a free gift worth over $50. That's T-H-R-I-V-E market.com slash Doug to get 40% off your first order and a free gift worth over $50. That's thrivemarket.com slash Doug Again, it's thrivemarket.com slash Doug Now back to the show. Yeah,
0: I think that was really well said. You know, it's this acknowledgement that we are animals and that our ancient wiring, you know, has evolved to have us consume as much of the good things that come our way as humanly possible. Because in a world of scarcity, you could never predict when you might not have more of that. But now, of course, we have an infinite supply of almost every reinforcing substance and behavior. And so it's a really hard world to live in, especially if we have that kind of innate vulnerability to be over consumers or to do things at you know the maximum volume, so to speak. So I think acknowledging you know, the physiologic imperative or loop that we can get into and then recognizing that it's not hopeless— And that truly by abstaining for long enough, we can reset reward pathways such that we're then re-entering engagement with that substance from a new place, from a healthier baseline, from a place of more resilience and ability to manage our consumption. Not that it's easy going forward from that. Again, we have to be very disciplined. We also have to be aware of what are the things that are like stepping stones to our drug of choice, you know, so for example, you know, for me, you know, as you know, I write about in the book how I got addicted to erotic novels, and it was interesting to begin to observe after I did a you know a dopamine fast from them, and then went back to using them. Had the abstinence violation effect, where like I binged all weekend long, you know, went showed up at work like with no sleep, feeling horrible, and then I actually had to give up those erotic novels for a year to really kind of feel like I could manage it again. Then discovered going back to trying erotic novels that it like didn't do the trick, you know, that I was going to need a so much more potent drug to ca- recapture that original that I just sort of said, you know what, it's I'm not going to use that substance anymore because I don't want to go to the place that I would have to go, uh, you know, to recapture it. But of course, so people with the disease of addiction, I mean, that's part of their disease that they would be willing, you know, that they have that nature, they would be willing to go very, very far. So, I mean, I think these are such Things that can really present themselves in so many aspects of our life, so we always have to kind of be aware and monitor. It's it's a balancing act, right? It's a it's a delicate balancing act, but it is it is possible.
1: And thanks for sharing and being vulnerable about like your side of the story and the things that you struggle with. I know you talked about that in your book, Dopamine Nation, and I think it's, it's very relatable because that often you hear that story a lot. It didn't just start with like. Somebody going out and you know doing a bunch of heroin. It started sometimes with somebody going out and smoking pot to numb the pain, and then they couldn't get high enough. They moved on to another drug, another drug, another drug, right? And the same thing with sex and money and all these other examples that you hear about with how it relates to these neurotransmitters in our brain. I want to talk about like kind of recalibrating the system a little bit, but in a real time example, in that you see a lot of people chasing after attention, pleasure, and that sort of thing after they go through something like a breakup and they find themselves like super depressed and they end up maybe like serial dating on dating apps or you you see themselves, they might be like posting provocative pictures online to get attention, like whatever the case may be. Like when somebody is depressed and they're going through something like a breakup or some sort of loss where they're feeling down, is their dopamine levels being suppressed and is that why they're seeking out these quick fixes to get like quick rushes of dopamine.
0: Yeah, so there are there's an interesting literature showing that people who struggle with chronic depression who do not have addiction, they just have depression, um that you will actually see decreased dopamine firing in key areas of their brain. So we do believe that sort of low baseline dopamine is a characteristic of the problem of depression and in fact, again, what happens with addiction is that we essentially, because we're flooding our brains with too much dopamine, the brain compensates by down dopamine transmission, and we then enter uh, that depressive state. So that's why We say that addiction is the great mimic. You know, intoxication can look like mania, can look like psychosis. Withdrawal can look exactly like depression. And it's hard to know. Are you dealing with somebody who just has addiction and is going through this cycle or someone who has addiction and depression? The bottom line is because depression is this sort of, you know, depressed, like literally dopamine depressed state. It's very natural for people in that state to want to reach for something to make themselves feel better. And epidemiologically, what we see is that people who struggle with disorders like depression are at greater risk for becoming addicted as a form of kind of self-medication, trying to get themselves out of that dark space. But what people usually don't notice, and this is what I keep trying to bring to the attention of, of my patients and my students and such... Is that although the drug may initially work to bring us out of that, you know, dopamine hole, over time, it puts us in an even deeper hole through this process of neuroadaptation or gremlins hopping on the pain side of the balance, as I talk about in my book. So it's it's such a you know a cunning and deceptive path because what initially works to bring us up actually becomes the source of our feeling worse in the long run. And therefore, and and you add to that the fact that we don't remember that so this thing that you know makes us feel good initially but makes us feel worse in the long run all we remember is the feeling good part and we can't see the feeling bad part and that's where you know telling stories or using words to describe our lived experience is so incredibly powerful whether we're doing that with a therapist or a coach or in a 12-step meeting, or with a friend, it's a way that we can bring to the surface what has really happened to us, what the real trajectory is, which otherwise we wouldn't see, right? But it's kind of that collective hippocampus or memory that we get from 12-step meetings where we're reminded, oh yeah, that's right, that's what happens when I use that drug. When if left to our own devices, it would be very hard to um, keep that vivid enough to direct behavior
1: I mean that's so well said and I think that like one of the things that people struggle with is it's hard to not fall into the trap of instant gratification and finding these you know quick easy things that are unhealthy often to make us feel better and what's super hard is us leaning into, Like things that can make us feel better, whether that's being around a good community of people, whether that's meditating, whether that's exercise. I know you talk about like when somebody's like thinking about like doing a drug that they are in recovery from, that they should do something hard and challenging, right? To help get through that. Like, what do you recommend for somebody who maybe isn't addicted to drugs, but they're just struggling with? like this impulsiveness to make these behaviors and doing things that they would regret, whether it's spending money they don't have, whether it's, whether it's sex, whether it's gambling, like, or what have you.
0: Yeah, so I really recommend, as you say, kind of leaning into pain. And that starts with just sitting with our uncomfortable feelings and not trying to do something to distract ourselves. Because no matter how fast we run, those feelings are gonna catch up with us. So a much better thing to do is just sort of give up In a way, you know, this is sort of a surrender moment and turn and face those uncomfortable feelings and just say, okay, I'm just going to to sit through this. I'm going to tolerate this. Or I'm gonna do something that's even harder than the pain of sitting with this and I'm going to reach out to somebody and I'm gonna to talk to them or I'm going to force myself to go outside and go for a walk and, and hope that I feel better after that or I'm gonna force myself to you know, pray or meditate or any of these effortful things that we don't feel like doing, but that we have learned if we do them, we feel better afterwards. And again, that's also physiologic, right? this whole science of hormesis, this idea that by exposing ourselves to mild to moderate amounts of noxious stimuli, we actually start to make more of our own dopamine, which is what we want. Like we're we're, we're in a dopamine deficit state. We want to restore homeostasis. The first way to do that is to abstain from our drug. But the other way to do that is to press harder on the pain side and allow our bodies to kind of respond by upregulating dopamine production. So it's all of these things kind of tolerating the discomfort of just letting those feelings be and realizing that we can you know we can withstand them we can tolerate them that we are strong enough for that and then allowing our resilience to be a touchstone for us going forward this idea that well I made it through that I, I really am strong I can I can make it through this whatever this is
1: Just being able to sit in that discomfort and in that painful moment is like the key to everything right and it's often, Like very challenging when you have this urge to do something that might be legal and that you might be able to do, but deep down that you either shouldn't do it or that after you do the thing, you're going to feel like 10 times worse than you were the moment you were sitting there, like trying to sit in that discomfort of not doing the thing. And with addiction, the symptoms of it, in many ways, it can be pretty obvious between irritability, behavioral issues, there's trouble with relationships to jobs, I can go on and on with examples of when typically when you can maybe know when somebody might be having a hard time with an addiction. But like, how does the average person who is just like, you know, ingrained in this impulsiveness where they're just spending money they don't have, you know, sleeping around too much when they know they, they shouldn't be or it's not healthy for them, or maybe like, on social media too much like how does somebody know that their dopamine system is is out of whack
0: you know i think one of the best ways for the average person to sort of probe this question is to do a dopamine fast to decide to not do that thing for a a period of time and to see what happens And people who are not severely addicted, you know, are typically able to do that. They're able to say, okay, I'm not going to do, you know, I'm not going to go on a Snapchat or Twitter for a period of time. I'm not going to um, go on this dating app for a period of time. I'm not going to eat this particular food for a period of time. And to just sort of self-observe, you know, it's it's a great opportunity to practice mindfulness, that is to say observing our thoughts and things without judgment, but also without trying to run away from them. So I think that is a good place to start, honestly. Because when also when people feel better after a period of absence, and they're often surprised at how much better they feel, but they're also motivated then. They're, they say to themselves, well, I really, I hadn't thought that like doing Twitter was actually making me more depressed and anxious. But now that I stopped, I realize I feel better. And so I don't want to do Twitter going forward, or I don't want to do Twitter as much as I did before in the way that I did before. So, I mean, it sounds so basic and kind of simple, but I do think it's really important. The other thing, of course, is surrounding ourselves with other people who value this type of project. That is the, the project of limiting our consumption, which is not just you know good for us, but also good for our environment, good for the planet. So, you know, consistent with most people's values. And that feels good, right? Living in alignment with our values. Another piece of it that I think is really fundamental that we often don't talk about is just the ways in which we're so rushed in the modern world. And if we can just slow things down and give ourselves an opportunity to breathe and do things slowly, that sometimes in and of itself can be enough to sort of okay, take a pause and let me really think about, do I want to do this thing or, you know, do I not want to do it? And so I think, you know, again, giving ourselves permission to just slow it way, way down, to take a breath, to have some compassion for ourselves in this dopamine overloaded world, but also just like take things a lot slower for a few seconds or moments can be really helpful.
1: It's such great advice. And I think that, like people just need to take that first step and develop the self-awareness, like like you said, like in order to try to get better at whatever problem that might be going on in your life, you first have to develop the awareness that there is a problem and then accepting it, surrounding yourself with people that have like-minded interests, common values, and that are focusing on bettering themselves too. And then like kind of working together collaboratively to so that individually you can all heal from whatever it is you're going through and help make the world a better place. One of the things that, is pretty common now is the addiction to like social media. Like I even find myself like setting limits on my phone for an hour a day or something on Instagram, but I find myself ignoring it (laughs) most of the time and just saying, you know, ignore for today, ignore for today. And then I'm just, the barrier is off. What do things like Instagram and Facebook and other forms of social media, like what kind of impact do they have on our dopamine levels and how can somebody have like a healthy relationship with social media?
0: Yeah. So I think the first thing that's important to acknowledge is that social media is a drug. I mean, it's a very potent releaser of dopamine in the brain's reward pathway, exactly like you know other drugs and, and alcohol and, and what have you. So it, it definitely is a potent reinforcer. And for people who have a propensity for addiction or who have a propensity for addiction to uh, human intimacy and human contact... Uh, which is in and of itself healthy, you know, to want human contact. But if your particular drug of choice tends to be this attachment, um, then social media has the the possibility of being a, a very powerful addictive drug. So first, just recognizing that it's a drug, that it releases dopamine in the same part of the reward pathway as other traditional drugs. And then again, noticing how we're consuming that drug, if we're consuming it in an addictive way that's interfering with our values and then, you know, to have a healthy relationship with social media, I, I, again, I think it's important to take this period of time away because what can happen is we get a very distorted perspective of the importance or what we call the salience of social media. And we begin to really live primarily in the virtual world where all of our meaning is gets derived from social media and our identity and our purpose. And we almost, the real world kind of disappears in that process. And that that's a very dangerous phenomenon, I think, especially when you think about like, you know, the meta, metaverse is coming down the pike, this idea that we're going to 3D all be living in this, you know, three-dimensional space. I think that's very, very dangerous because we don't ultimately – want to live in a space that we can entirely control. So this is a little bit more of a complicated idea. We think we want to control everything. We think we do. And we strive for that in our lives, controlling the way we feel, controlling what happens to us, to other people. But in fact, our happiest moments tend to be the moments where we don't have control, right? We're subjugated to something larger than ourselves, which is in a way what drugs do, right? That's why there's that appeal. We can forget ourselves when we're in the grips of drugs. But of course drugs are sort of this this false this false God. Social media can almost be like a false god too, like it is all powerful. But ultimately that is not what is going to make us happy. We really do want to live in the real world which is a world of unpredictability that we cannot control. That's the essence of the real world as opposed to the virtual world, which on the face of it just sounds awful. Like I don't want to, you know, I'm terrified at the thought of not knowing what the next moment will bring in small ways and in large ways. I I think that I want to know and I want to be able to control it, but that doesn't make us happy. What makes us ultimately happy is when we again surrender ourselves to the unfolding of our unpredictable lives, um, which is so paradoxical, but in fact that is what makes us happy happiest. So this virtual world, it's like a world we can control. It's human-made. It resembles real life enough that it seems like real life. We get caught in up in it. We care about it. But ultimately it's like it's a false, you know, it's an idol. It's really a false thing. And it doesn't, you know, it doesn't make us happy.
1: Have you seen or do you think that we will see or are seeing like a bunch of people that their brains are now wired for addiction before because of their excess social media use?
0: Not just social media, but all the kinds of reinforcing drugs and behaviors that are available to people now. I do think that it has changed our brains such that we can tolerate less pain. We need more stimuli in order to feel any pleasure at all. And when we're not using, we're in this state of sort of sub-threshold withdrawal. I do think that that is what has happened to the, the modern human, which is you know why many of us are endorsing that we're more miserable than ever. If you look at survey studies on happiness, what you'll see is that people are less happy today than they were 20 years ago. And the least happy people in the world live in the richest countries with the United States Topping that list, which is, you know, completely ironic because we have more of everything we ever wanted, and yet we're more unhappy. So, I do really think that the modern mind has been, you know, rewired or reprogrammed. It's not that we can't get back to a happier place, but I do think that, you know, we're sort of all in this kind of dopamine deficit state as a result of this firehose of dopamine. There's some interesting imaging, brain imaging work showing that when people are engaging in short-term or immediate rewards, the part of their brain that lights up most is the limbic area or the reward pathway, which is those deeper, more primitive brain structures that are conserved across millions of years of evolution and species that are the same in the lizard as they are in the human. So we're essentially acting out of our lizard brain Whereas when people are engaging in longer-term delayed rewards that they have to do work for to get, the part of the brain that lights up is the prefrontal cortex, which is that gray matter area right behind our foreheads that's so important for delayed gratification, for storytelling, for appreciating future consequences. So it's possible that our prefrontal cortices are atrophying due to lack of use, and we're we're all being driven by this kind of lizard brain because we're just all about short-term rewards.
1: And it's like this vicious cycle, too, because doesn't when we're stressed out, it kind of suppresses our prefrontal cortex as well. Right. So if we're stressed and we're not able to think cognitively and use that part of our brain, we're going to turn to like the limbic system, as you said, to use things to make us feel better, like in the moment right away, because we're not used to dealing with stress in a healthy way to kind of bring ourselves back down to some level of homeostasis.
0: Yes, exactly. There's a, there's a great experiment in rats where if you get a rat addicted to cocaine and the rat learns that it has to press the lever for cocaine, the rat will essentially press that lever, lever till exhaustion and, or until it dies. But if then you take the cocaine away, it will eventually extinguish that behavior, meaning that the rat will stop pressing the lever because there's no cocaine coming. Then if you wait a year, which is about equivalent to the rat lifetime, foot shock that rat. So put it under enormous stress with a very, very painful, physical injury or, or stimulus, the first thing that rat will do when it's released from the foot shock is run to the lever and start to press it. So you're absolutely right. Stress can sort of reawaken, you know, this kind of primitive urge to seek out something to kind of comfort ourselves. It's
1: so wild of a guy. I mean, it's scary, but it's helpful at the same time because, you know, at least we have some level of awareness to be able to understand like what's going on fundamentally so that then we can take some of these steps that you've talked about in order for us to improve our relationship with dopamine and kind of retrain our brain. One of the things that I think people are, are really struggling with now is their ability to focus, which dopamine, I believe plays a role in as well. So maybe if you could explain to the audience in the best of your ability, like how does dopamine impact things like focus? And what are some like tips you have for people to like improve their level of focus in a world where people are so distracted?
0: Well, that's a great question because I think we're we're all struggling with this, you know, in the world of distractibility and with this digital content that's so good at capturing our and keeping our attention. You know, part of the reason that we're all becoming less attentive is because we have the ability to reach for a distractor. In any moment where we have like a cognitive friction that we have to push against. So let me describe a little bit how that works. Whenever we're engaging in any kind of effortful cognitive task, we will all naturally reach a point of sort of frustration or distress where we would like to stop doing what we're doing. And if we have our phones right there where we can turn to it and start to watch YouTube videos, then you know it's a natural that we would want to do that as a kind of relief from having to push against or tolerate sort of the cognitive load or the cognitive distress. And as soon as we do that, we get a hit of dopamine and that d- dopamine is then reinforcing, followed again by that dopamine deficit state, which then drives us to want to stay in that place where we're distracted and sort of numbing ourselves and detached. But the problem with that is then we we don't develop the kind of mental resilience and the in the neural circuits that we need to, to be able to push through those moments of cognitive friction. So instead, what we need to do is get rid of all of our easy access to these distractors, you know, deleting the apps, putting the phone away, enter into some kind of task that requires sustained attention, knowing that we will maybe almost immediately encounter a, you know, a speed bump or maybe even a roadblock. And then instead when that happens, just sit there. Just sit there and say, okay, like my brain is tired or I don't know how to solve this problem or I'm not sure how to get through. And don't allow ourselves to escape that cognitive moment. Sit there, breathe, slow it down and then gird ourselves as we would physically for like a physical thing, like lifting a heavier weight or climbing a mountain or you know, f- going across a river and say, okay, I'm gonna now try to start again. And the practice of that, because the brain is a muscle, will make our brains stronger over time. And we will note our ability to push through those moments. So the key is to anticipate that those moments will come to not get down on ourselves. Also, I think there's a kind of exceptionalism that can occur now where people will say, you know, I have this problem where, you know, I can't pay attention for a sustained period. Other people don't have that problem. It's just me. I have, you know, I have that problem. And yes, it's true. There's a spectrum of ability to pay attention. But trust me, everybody has a problem maintaining their attention and focus on things that are hard to do. Nobody gets a free pass. So for people to sort of you know develop that narrative where it's like I'm the only one who has to deal with it, I worry about that right as a, as opposed to normalizing and saying hey you know what like my brain got tired after two seconds that's a bummer but let me just sit here take a breath and see if I can start again or see if that the problem that I can't solve right now. Maybe I'll just sit here and maybe it'll come to me, right? Or, or maybe I need to take a little walk and come back. But what you don't want to do is reach for that source of dopamine that's just going to let you sort of completely get out of that neural circuit that you're trying to strengthen in pursuit of this larger goal.
1: Yeah, I mean, you said so many things that are so relevant and important for people to hear and like that one is like like retraining your brain, like really taking time to focus and pay attention and two is like not beating yourself up if you can't do it for as long as you think you could or for as long as the person next to you or as, as long as your, your neighbor or whatever and just like accepting that everyone's struggling to pay attention and to be as focused as they once were. And also it's important for people to not fall into that victim mindset, but also like not take the bait and do like what I do <laughs> when I like can't focus is I'll go on my phone and I'll, get, get, I'll scroll on Instagram. And that's not like the healthy thing to do with that because it's just, it just defeats the purpose. You end up finding yourself like even less focused, right?
0: Yeah, and I think one way to attack this problem too is to purposefully set time limits. So again, using time as a construct and say to yourself, you know, I'm gonna set a limit of 30 minutes and I'm gonna just focus on this for 30 minutes. And if I find myself distracted, like I'm gonna try to notice that I lost I wasn't paying attention and sort of bring myself back. But I'm what I'm not going to do is I'm not going to let myself do anything else, right? I'm not going to let my... And then at the end of that 30 minutes, give yourself then permission to do something else. Maybe get up from that space where you're... So you create a space that's your quiet, focus space, or maybe you have background music. You know, people focus in different ways. But, you know, schedule the time that you're going to be focused and schedule the time that you're going to let yourself be distracted on Instagram or whatever it is. But also, you know, acknowledging that like creativity and and new ideas really do require us to waiting for what arises in our own brains.
1: Yeah, our best ideas many times come from a place of stillness and quietness when we're, we're not distracted. Last question I want to ask you and to kind of bring a close to our conversation, it relates back to focus. You talked about like retraining the brain and and practicing and being intentional with paying more attention. Are there any like tools that you would recommend for somebody that they could work with that would help their focus? Like maybe like a coloring book, doing like a crossword puzzle or things like that?
0: I think that the main thing for learning and maintaining focus is what I call self-binding strategies, which is using time or categories uh, or actual physical barriers between ourselves and our drugs of choice, our easy distractors, so that we can press the pause button between desire and consumption. If I'm sitting here trying to focus and like my drug is right next to me, let's say a bag of potato chips or, you know, easy access to a YouTube video, or any of the number of things that, that I like to do that are pure pleasure for me, if they're right there, I mean, I'm human, right? How am I not going to reach for that? So really acknowledging the ways in which we're all vulnerable and that you have to really create this world within a world and you have to do it in a premeditated, intentional way in advance in order to hope to have a chance to be able to sit with sustained attention and not become, you know, uh, go to that other thing. So I think that kind of pre-planning and anticipating and then creating a space that works for you, whatever that may be, in in order to be able to sit there, you know, and intentionally. So in a way what that's about is like not expecting yourself to be not human. It's acknowledging that we're all human and vulnerable in this way and like and doing yourself a favor by creating an environment that allows you to reach your goal.
1: Got it. Yeah, that all makes so much sense. And Anna, I, w- I really wanted to thank you once again for coming back on the podcast. And for those listening, what I invite you to do is to check out Anna's book, Dopamine Nation. You will learn so much detail about some of the stuff we talked about today and much more. And what I invite you to also do is to share a takeaway. There was a lot shared today about dopamine. We talked about addiction, social media focus, pleasure, and just different tips to combat all of that. So what I invite you to do is to share a takeaway from this episode and let us know what you learned. And we once again, thank you for listening to this episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst, and we'll see you next time.